Okay. We have a ton to get through today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, as you're doing that, as most of you know, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, just going line by line, and we left off last week in Matthew 5, verse 26. So let's pick it up in verse 27. Uh, and again, let's just pray real quick before we begin. So Father, we just invite you through the teachings of your son, Jesus, and uh, just the working of the Holy Spirit to transform us. Amen. All right. Verse 27 starts, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except, except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. So nothing controversial in there, right? I'm not going to lie, we have a bit of a tough conversation ahead. Uh, but please know, if I didn't love you, I'd just skip these kind of teachings, right? It would be easier. But I love you, so we're going to dive in. So first off, verse 27. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So that's a quote from Exodus 20, verse 15. It's number seven of the Ten Commandments. And if you're here last week, we saw that Jesus was teaching on number six of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Next, number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now, in our day, there's a lot more adultery than murder, in part because there's, there's so little fallout anymore. But still, even today, if you're a, you're a follower of Jesus and you're in a semi-healthy marriage, it's easy to read this and go, think, oh, good, okay, no problem, I got that. I'm good. But Jesus is about to kind of pull back the curtain and show you the heart of God behind that command. So have a look at 28. But I tell you, so remember, this was a little verbal thing used by rabbis in Jesus' day to, that basically meant, here's a quote from the Old Testament. Here's what you think it means. Here's what it actually means. He says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And at first glance, this sounds like an impossible idea. Like what? Like I can't go to Sparkle and buy soup without being exposed to soft porn, right? There's just no way. And so the temptation is either to kind of write Jesus off as being out of touch with reality or circle down the whirlpool of guilt and shame rather than take Jesus seriously as a human being and as a brilliant teacher who knows exactly what he's talking about. So just to clarify, first, Jesus is not talking about the appreciation of beauty. There are beautiful people in the world. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing. Genesis chapter 1, God, saw, God said all that, all that he had made, and behold, it was very what? Good. And that word good in the Hebrew is to ove. It's a, an aesthetic word. It has to do with sight. To look at a beautiful man or a beautiful woman and to find them attractive, that's not a sin. That's normal and healthy. That's not what Jesus is talking about. 
Secondly, he's not talking about that momentary flash of sexual desire that comes from when you see a beautiful woman or man. Again, that's not a sin. That's temptation. So don't, and don't, don't confuse the two. There are times when I have seen an attractive woman, and at a neurobiological level, right, against my will, I am struck with sexual desire. I don't know this woman. I don't have feelings for this woman. I love my wife. I don't want to have an affair with this woman. I don't even know her name, but something, there's something there, right? And I'm not, I'm not a scientist, but something at a kind of a neurobiological level. My brain is hit with chemicals. There's a part of me, not the deepest part of me, there's a part of me that wants to look not once, but twice, three times after that first initial glance. And hopefully this is a safe place, like we all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, that's not a sin, it's, it's a temptation. Now, we can't control temptation, but we can influence it. Am I right? By the kind of TV we watch, by the kind of media we browse, by the websites we visit, you have a say in your temptation. So Martin Luther wrote this, he said, We should not make the bolstering of Jesus' teachings too taut here as if anyone who is merely tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or from biting off my nose. It's a little 16th century humor there. The point is, temptation is not what Jesus is talking about here. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about, in context, when a man gazes at a woman in order to get sexual gratification from her body. The line, looks at a woman lustfully, means to gaze at somebody's body in order to get sexual gratification. Dallas Willard said it means anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. What Jesus is getting at is not that first look or that flash of sexual desire, it's what you do after that. It's the second look, or the third, or the fourth, or when you replay the movie in your mind's eye, or imagination later, or you add to it, or you imagine yourself in a sexual encounter with that person. And rather than override your desire for lust, instead you give in to it. This is similar to our anger teaching from last week, right? You give in to that feeling you get, and you cultivate it. And you let it take root in your heart, and then grow. Jesus is saying that all starts with a second look, a gaze, that we kind of laugh off as no big deal. If you're a woman and you've been the victim of this kind of look, then you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. If you're a man and you've been the victim or the perpetrator of this kind of look, you know exactly what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is dealing with is a core issue with humans. And that is that the way that men in particular objectify women. And once again, it goes both ways, more now than ever. But in context, Jesus is teaching the men. So we just kind of have to deal with, with that, deal with it that way today. And the problem here is not sexual desire or the beauty of the female body or male body. Like, those are all good things. Like, if you don't believe me, read Genesis. Or if you really don't believe me, read the Song of Songs when you're ready. It's an entire book in the scripture. It's erotic, it's poetic, it's classy, it's beautiful, and it's a celebration not only of love, but of sexuality. And it's in the Bible. And 
It's a story that Jesus grew up hearing read out loud at the synagogue every single year at Passover. That was Jesus' worldview. Jesus is not like some Middle Ages celibate monk with a serious guilt complex. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the creator God who created you, who created all of your body, who made it with design and meaning and purpose as artwork. That's who Jesus is. That's not the problem. The problem is when we turn other people, in particular women who fit our cultural definition of beauty, into objects, into things that fuel our sexual desire. And the problem is not just the objectification of beautiful women or men, but it's also those who don't fit our cultural definition of beauty. The other reality that we rarely talk about is the devastating effects that objectification has on those who don't have the same sexual allure, who don't walk down the sidewalk and all heads turn, who don't have the same leg up in the world that beautiful people have, who in study after study, don't take my word for it, get promoted more often, make more money, have more friends, just because they won the genetic lottery. When we objectify people, We either fit or don't fit our cultural definition of beauty. We dehumanize them. And in doing so, we dehumanize not only them, but ourselves. We become ruled by our primal-based desires, rather than in control or ruling over our primal-based desires, what the New Testament calls our flesh. And this is more acute now than it's ever been, in particular in the Western world. For the first time since, even way before Jesus, before the Roman Empire, for the first time in the West, we no longer believe in what's called moral knowledge. And moral knowledge is the idea that just as there are natural laws in the universe, gravity, E equals MC squared, there are also moral and even relational laws in the universe. So this moral and spiritual knowledge has been moved to the realm of opinion and feeling. And so it's easy to write off. And what's left in the aftermath is a culture that no longer believes in an objective standard for good and evil. Every thriving culture in human history, Christian or not, has said basically, if you want to live a good life, the most important thing is to become a good person. And so if you were wise, the pursuit of virtue was the driving pursuit of your life. Now we live in a culture that doesn't believe anymore in right or wrong or good or evil. And so the pursuit of future is no longer a goal for most. Now it's just pursuit of your own desires. And the lie at the heart of our culture is that you give in to your desire, trust your feelings, follow your heart. That's the road to a good life. But every other thriving civilization in human history, again, Christian or not, has said humans have good desires and we have lousy desires. And some desires we want to fuel pour gasoline on, fan the flames of those desires, and other desires we repress. Or Jesus used the word crucify, which is more hardcore. means execute. There are desires that you need to take out back and shoot in the head. There are some desires you need to fight and war against. That's what it is to be human. To live in this human body with this raging war of conflicting desires inside of you. That's why we need Jesus as a brilliant person who is our Lord and authority to show us here. Here's the roadmap to go forward and break free from your flesh.
these desires that are out of sync with a full and abundant life. All that to say, we now live in a day and age where moral knowledge is all but gone. Lives are mostly lived on opinion. And so it's just follow your heart. Follow your feelings. Do what, do what, it is to, do what feels good to you. And I think what Jesus has to say is so important because underneath the objectification of women, there's an even deeper problem. He's saying, listen, nobody wakes up in the morning and has an affair in the afternoon on accident. That, for the most part, doesn't happen. Affairs begin months before, if not years before, if not decades before. Right? If you back up the timeline, there's, they always start with a porn addiction or an emotional connection thing or even that gaze at the woman on the sidewalk. When you give in to lust, it does something to your heart where you start to confuse lust with love. And the two are very different. So if you read 1 Corinthians 13, it gives us the definition of love in the New Testament. What's the first line? Anybody know? Love is what? Patient. Love is patient. It's not in a rush. Lust is always in a rush. Lust doesn't want to wait for the next date, much less for marriage. It wants what it wants, and it wants it now. Love is patient. It's fine to wait because I'm in it for the long haul, till death do us part. Lust is in it for the short, time, short term, really as long as this emotional high lasts, which for romance is usually about two years, for sexuality is often very, much shorter than that. Then I'm on to the next one. So let's chase the high from person to person, relationship to relationship, sexual encounter to sexual encounter. Love isn't self-centered. The definition of love is when you put the good of another ahead of your own good, whether it's your spouse or your enemy. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's the same person for me. Well, that simplifies it for you. <laughs> love is when you will the good of another ahead of your own. Lust, on the other hand, is selfish. Love is an act of the will. It's not just a feeling. Love is when you make a decision with the will, the most central part of you. Your will is what separates human beings from an animal. You can make a decision to love another human being with your whole person, mind, and body. Lust is what happens when that will is drowned out by your primal animal-like desires, by your flesh. And it's drowned out no matter the cost to other people, or even your own soul. There's a big difference. They're worlds apart. And the reason that Jesus is so hardcore here is because if you've read the teachings of Jesus, the claims that, he claims that the most important command in all the Bible is what? To love what? The Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all your body. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And lust is the, is the exact opposite of love. It is using another, using your neighbor, whether it's your girlfriend or an image of somebody online or whatever, as a body for your own personal sexual gratification. And deeper than a behavioral problem, this is a heart problem. Lust resides in a place nobody else sees. But I want you to notice that with Jesus, there's always a way out. 
In fact, as I said last week with anger, notice Jesus doesn't say, I command you not to lust. But he says something else. If he just said, hey, everybody, never lust, it would be really easy to just write Jesus off. Because that's like an impossible idea. Instead, what he does command is much more down-to-earth language. Just baby steps. Just a few creative, practical steps to take. Have a look at 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, get out your pocket knife, pop that puppy out. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Like I said, a few baby steps. And if you're new to the Bible, you're like, wait, what? So, no, Jesus is not teaching self-mutilation here, okay? Okay? I worry sometimes, all right? This is very similar to his teaching on anger, if you were here last week, about leaving your gift at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, you know, trucking it back 80 miles back to your home to solve a dispute or whatever. It's hyperbole. And it's for shock effect. But what he's saying here is serious. He's saying, deal drastically with lust. At the first sign of it, cut it out. Don't shrug it off. Don't manage it. Dallas Willard talks about how we usually try to do sin management. Right? There's none of that with Jesus. He's saying, don't stick a Band-Aid on it and pop an Advil. Do whatever, you t- whatever it takes to get rid of it. And if you don't, then you will stumble. And I love the language, like you will trip and you will fall into Gehenna or into hell, like we, like we said last week. This place you do not want to go. Whether that takes the form of an addiction or the inability to actually experience sexual pleasure with a real human being or a real spouse or the death of intimacy or just the crippling burdens of guilt and shame. Or God forbid the death of a marriage or the collateral damage of an affair. It's hell on earth. And some of you know that from experience. Either your own, or your mom, or your dad, or your your friend. Some of you know it all too well. And Jesus is saying it all starts way back with a gaze. Second look. that does something to your heart. And Jesus is calling us to abundant life. This, I think, is one of the most difficult of all of the teachings of Jesus, for men in particular. And men, we live in a we live in a time where it is very difficult. It shouldn't be this difficult. Technology has made it way too easy to lust. But Jesus is not calling you and me to something impossible. Difficult, not impossible. It takes practice. You don't get it the first time. It takes community, and more than anything, it takes the Holy Spirit's help. So you have to be listening and obedient to the Spirit. But it is possible. Lust is a habit of the mind. It's not the law of gravity. And you can be transformed. But here's the thing. It will cost you. It will cost you how much? An eye and a hand? An arm and leg? Right? An eye and a hand, which is Jesus' way of saying it's going to cost you a lot. And I'm not going to go through the way that you may have to put up guardrails and, and blocks or blockers, you know, or not watch the movies or shows that everybody's talking about or get rid of Wi-Fi, get a flip phone, you know. You know where you're being tempted to lust. Get rid of it. It's going to cost you. But we don't manage sin 
We cut it off. Okay, let's move to an easier topic. Divorce. Everybody good? We okay? All right. And, and I want to say, today is not the time for an in-depth teaching on divorce and remarriage. I will do that at some point. If you want to do an in-depth study before then, there's a phenomenal book on the subject called, it's called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Instone Brewer. It's under 200 pages. It's well-written. Uh, it's the best resource I know on the subject. Feel free to give that a read. But for now, let's quickly take a look again at what Jesus said. Verse 31. It has been said, so here's a quote, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now I'm guessing most of you don't recognize that quote. It's from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. But remember, Jesus is teaching in an oral culture, so not a written culture. Most of the people in the crowd would have had all the Torah, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, memorized. So just think about that. So in our church, Bruce is the only one with the Torah memorized. (laughs) But in Jesus' day, almost everybody had it memorized. And so the beauty was, Jesus could just quote one line and everybody just like, he just came to mind the whole thing. So here's the whole thing. Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, so remember that, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or he dies. Okay, so this is the mother of all hypothetical situations. Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So that's in the Bible. Now, I don't have time to take all that apart, but what's going on right here? This this isn't a command. It's case law, okay? It's not even about when divorce is okay or not or God's heart behind divorce. It's about the aftermath of divorce and how to mitigate its devastating effects on women in ancient society. Moses is saying you need to at least give her a document that says she's free to remarry. Because before this, a man could reclaim his wife after divorce up to five years later. She was property. So Moses is like, no, that's not okay. Now in Jesus' day, there was a raging debate over that one phrase about a man finding something indecent about his wife. What exactly does Moses mean by something indecent? So most rabbis in the past had said, well, that means adultery. If your wife has an affair, here's how you divorce her, but you don't dishonor her. But a generation before Jesus, there was this idea exploding, and it was led by this guy named Rabbi Hillel. He said that you can divorce your wife for any reason. So you don't like her cooking? Divorce. You don't like her how she looks anymore? Divorce. You can divorce her for any reason at all. It was an easy divorce culture. And by Jesus' day, you didn't even have to go to court. Men could just throw their wives out, and women had no rights. So Jesus is not down with that, as you can imagine. And he's about to weigh in on this debate, this, this debate around this debate. So take a look at 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. 
And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying, listen, I know the popular interpretation right now. That what everybody's saying, that you can divorce your wife for any reason at all. But I tell you, the right way to interpret Deuteronomy 24 is, if you divorce your wife just because she's not pleasing to to you anymore, right? you fell out of love or you moved on or you grew apart or whatever your rationale is, in Jesus' mind, you make her the victim of adultery. Now again, Jesus is dealing with a core problem in the human condition. That is that the byproduct of objectification of women is the oppression of women. The two are ultimately connected. And Jesus is not giving, he's also not giving an in-depth, comprehensive teaching on divorce and remarriage here on the Sermon on the Mount. What's going on is Jesus is weighing in on this raging debate over how to interpret Deuteronomy 24. And he's, and he's saying that that hollow interpretation is way off. And in doing so, here's our big point. In doing so, he's beating up on an easy divorce culture that favored men over women. And that's just as relevant today as it's ever been. Do we live in an easy divorce culture? Yes. That's not my opinion. There's all sorts of science behind this. that basically says that men, as a general rule, are attracted most to beauty. And women, as a general rule, are attracted most to status whether that status takes the form of wealth or fame or power or whatever. It's not popular to say, but there's data here. And as a man gets older, usually he starts to accrue more status. As a woman gets older, she usually starts to get further from our culture's definition of beauty. And so even in an egalitarian society, divorce is far better for men than it is for women. Divorce is the number one cause of poverty for women in the U.S., But we don't like to talk about that because it's not PC. But Jesus is dealing with that. And he's not down with this easy divorce culture. And he is calling his followers to a whole other view of marriage, where marriage is a covenant, where the heart posture is always reconciliation. And how can I make this work? Our American culture encourages us to stand up for our rights as an individual. God teaches us to sacrifice our legitimate rights for the sake of others. We are to reflect Christ's love and submit to each other with devotion and respect in our marriages. But for our marriages to survive, both parties must be first of all committed to God and his rule for their lives. All that being said, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. In Jeremiah 3.8, God says, For all her adulteries, I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce. God calls himself a divorced person. Now, of course, there there was no sin on his side of the divorce. Maybe there was on yours. Maybe you made terrible mistakes in that process, even committed terrible sins. You can't change that now, but those mistakes don't mean God is done with you. So think of David and Bathsheba. That relationship started under the worst circumstances. David had an affair with a married woman and then had her husband murdered. Yet when he confessed and repented, God cleansed and blessed that marriage. To the point that out of that marriage came Solomon. And Solomon had a son who had a son who had a son whose name was Jesus. God brought Jesus out of a relationship that began as an affair that led to murder. God is continually 
redeeming and bringing good out of bad situations. And I know this is a heavy conversation. And again, I love you. I thank you for not emailing me tomorrow. I really appreciate that. <laughs> but here's where I'm at. After sitting in this teaching for a while, the part that I'm most moved by isn't actually the call to not lust, although I'm convicted by that. It's not even a call to love my wife until death do us part, even though I'm inspired by that. But what I'm most moved by is just the call is just a deeper still to honor each other. And just to talk to the guys in the room, I think this is a call for you and me to honor our sisters, to honor their bodies, to honor their beauty, to not objectify them, and definitely not to oppress them. And sisters, I think even though this teaching is kind of for the men, I think it's for you as well. I think it's a call to honor each other and a call to honor your own body and your own beauty and not to objectify yourself and to honor your brothers. And to both men and women, it is a call to repent of all the ways that we've dishonored each other. Whether that's through divorce or a porn addiction or an inappropriate comment that you made to a woman or man, right? you fill in the blank. We repent, not to get God off our back, but to step back into his abundant way of life. The invitation of Jesus, when you read the four Gospels, over and over again, Jesus would say this one line, repent and believe the good news. That was the open invitation of Jesus, always. Repent. Translated means rethink everything from the ground up and trust the good news, the story that Jesus is telling us. The world's story is that sex is just uh, the biological release, that marriage is a social construct, that the church's teachings are repressive, that the number one goal is to be happy, so do whatever makes you happy in the moment. Don't really think about the long term or the person you're becoming. That's the story. The question is, does that story actually lead to full abundant life? Are the people that are living out that story actually someone you want to emulate? Or behind that is there emotional pain and regret and no intimacy and a bunch of insecurity and alimony payments and fatherlessness and all sorts of damage? You judge for yourself. Is there a better story than the one the world is screaming at us? I believe deeply that there is, yes. There is, and it's a story that Jesus tells. That you're a human being made in the image of God. Both male and female made in God's image. There's a purpose to your life, and who you are becoming matters more than momentary happy feelings. That sexuality is not just a biological release. Marriage is not just a social construct. It's when two separate autonomous human beings are fused together at the deepest level and become in the language of Genesis, one flesh. And out of that place, you grow and mature. And when we fail, we forgive, we repent, we do everything we can to reconcile and move forward. And as if you want to live a good life, you become a good person. And you do that through following Jesus. I think that's a much better story. I think it's good news. And the invitation of Jesus is to repent and believe the good news. Amen. Um, ministry team wants to come up. If you'd like prayer, ministry team's going to be up here after. Um, 
Maybe the best thing you can do today is get prayed for and ministered to by these people. Can we just stand together and pray? Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would do now what only you can do. Some, some of us are in here and we're really, we're hurting, we're hurting, Lord. We're banged up. This conversation is t- really tough for some. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us. Give strength to those in the fight against their lustful desires. Minister to the couples who have come in here whose marriages are not doing well. Men who've come in here today without their wives. Women who've come in today without husbands. I pray that you would just do a work. That you would minister. That you would draw near. That you would remind people of your redeeming power. Lord, I pray that you'd bring peace. I pray that you would bring life into marriages that have long lost it. I pray that today that we would simply commit to honor you and honor and bring worth to those we come in contact with. It's through your beautiful name I pray. Everybody said, amen.